the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome 505 on your Tuesday, the 26th of May, and happy post-Memorial Day weekend. Trust you had a uh, safe one. And uh, as always, a salute to those who have served us and gone before us. Got a great program lined up for you on this post-Memorial Day weekend edition of Lifeline. Coming up a little bit later on, churches begin to open. 24 of the 48 continental states see spikes in COVID-19, and the governor of California gets sued. We'll find out more. Brad Dacus joins us from the Pacific Justice Institute. That'll be later on in this first hour. Also a visit with Dr. Michael Brown. He's written a new book on the life of Job. And you know, it's always a challenge when you try to study and sort of determine out of the book of Job in its depth and richness and, and, and varying uh, approaches to the question of, of um, righteousness and justice and so forth. Um, how do we extrapolate lessons from the book of Job, even in such a time as this? when we've seen so much senseless loss of life, over 100,000 Americans, nearly twice as many as died in the 15 or so years of Vietnam War, 100,000 Americans gone in three months' time, and we wonder, where is justice? Where is God? Dr. Michael Brown joins us to help answer that question a little bit later on in tonight's program. Speaking of the raucous impact of COVID-19. As you know, this global pandemic has been claiming lives all over. And um, most recently, we've seen an uptick in two countries, notably Brazil, where our president has just now implemented a travel ban because of the huge spike there. And um, just in third place, following behind Brazil is Russia. Of course, I don't need to tell you who's in the number one position. This is not only causing great challenges to the healthcare system in Russia, but may have some potential interesting impact on the presidency and the designs for, what do we call it, short of dictatorship of Vladimir Putin. Behind all of the uh, questions related to the spread of the disease, and the way in which hospitals in Russia have been so overwhelmed has been, of course, not only tremendous suffering, but oddly enough, tremendous opportunity. We get some insights now from Michael Johnson. Michael is the president of the Slavic Gospel Association, and of course, they have a significant footprint uh, all throughout that portion of the uh, the former Soviet Union, 
Uh, they're involved in ministry in everything from Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and on, and of course, most notably, in Russia. And Michael, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. The, uh, the numbers certainly are, are telling. 362,000 Russians have now contracted the coronavirus, 3,800 dead, and there's no sign of that easing anytime soon. And I was watching last night in the news, uh, literally there are hospitals in Moscow that have had lines of ambulances, 15, 20, 30 ambulances deep waiting to get in, and they had a reporter talk to a couple of the ambulance drivers who said that they've been to other hospitals where they were literally being turned away because the medical system there is so significantly overwhelmed. And, of course, this is not the first time that Russians have gone through uh, significant types of of suffering, to be sure. Uh, I'm curious, from your perspective, the stories that you're hearing from the field, how are Russians dealing with all of this? And is there another open window of opportunity here to share the gospel? Um, yes, and answer your question, absolutely. There is an opportunity there uh, to share the gospel. And um, our ministry, just real quick, uh, was established in 1934, and we were heavily involved in the covert distribution of books and Bibles, and we had radio ministry there as well. When the country opened up um, 30 years ago, our focus was to uh, serve and equip the faithful churches uh, in those countries, the evangelical churches. So we have a connection um, in roughly 10 countries of the former Soviet Union of, former Soviet Union of roughly 6,350 churches, uh, which uh, allows us to get resources out to uh, many of the cities, towns, and villages uh, in those areas. Um, certainly there's been a lot of challenges in those countries. Uh, I think of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which took place in 1986, uh, where many people lost their lives as a result of radiation poisoning, and there still continues to be a problem. Uh, in this situation here, obviously, um, people are, are, um, are confronted with the, the onset of the virus, and uh, many people, as you point out, have been impacted by it. Um, we haven't seen nearly the number of deaths over there that we've seen here, but they know it's going to continue to grow, so it's a real struggle. But the economic uh, situation in those countries, as long as as well as their infrastructure and the supply chain uh, capabilities, uh, have been um, a challenge there. And uh, with the collapse of the oil prices, uh, their economy is really in the shambles right now. And, so and when you have an economy that, that has largely driven on um, so much black market, so much underground to begin with, does this put an added strain on sort of the, 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 uh, the white market economy that, that could potentially, if this digs in deep, um, present huge economic crises? Yes, and we're seeing that now. And and again, uh, Russia is a, Russia itself. It, it's a country that um, roughly two thirds of the asset assets of a country that is eleven and a half time zones long is centered in one city, and that's Moscow. And as you point out, Moscow is having a lot of challenges right now with with their infrastructure. Again, that the lines of people trying to get in the hospital is you know they're waiting three four days to get in. Uh, and so that's uh, problematic. But once you get out um, into the cities, towns, and villages, that's where people are really struggling as well. And uh, because of our network, we're getting we're getting reports and on a on just on a daily basis, just many reports of uh, people who have lost their jobs. They don't have access to to um, uh, 
to, to money and, and then financial support. They just don't have the infrastructure, and they simply don't have enough money to purchase food to survive. And so for us, um, because of the network we have, uh, we've been funneling humanitarian aid and, and, and uh, resources into those churches so that they are able to uh, meet the physical and the spiritual needs of those people at their exact, at their exact point of need. So um, you asked about the spiritual implications of this. Uh, I believe that based upon what we're seeing, that people are, are fearful, uh, people are questioning their values, they're questioning their, their themselves, they're questioning what their mortality, and many people are much more open to spiritual things now than they ever have been. Um, there was a huge opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel when the, when the walls came down. 30 years ago, but now um, it, it sort of waned, but now people are, are much more uh, acutely aware of the need uh, to understand if I go to the store and I, and I contract this virus and two weeks later um, I pass away, where am I going to end? Where am I going to spend eternity? And that's a question that people are asking themselves all over the world right now. You know, the, the irony is I was there in Russia not long after the collapse, 92, um, within six months, and and I was struck by a number of things. Uh, number one, the the degree of hunger in that country, spiritual hunger, uh, was absolutely astonishing. I mean, I, I had never seen anything like it in my Christian experience. And and clearly, um, on the heels of seventy years of atheistic communism, for the country's doors to open up and for people to have for the first time the opportunity to not only freely share, but freely hear about the gospel and God's word. Um, Russians were like uh, dry sponges, just soaking up the, the, the wealth of the water of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was fear then that it would last for a season, and as freedom and materialism began to uh, come in and fill that void, enter into that vacuum, that there may be a waning. That certainly has happened. Um, and there's been changes certainly from a from a political standpoint since 92, 93 as well. But I have to wonder, in the wake of this crisis, and one that promises only to get deeper before it gets better, as Russians are now having to grapple with not only um, the situation that they're facing, but the reality of the mortality, just as we are here in the United States and everywhere else, does this open up a door? Is there, is there, in your anticipation, an opportunity for maybe a another great awakening, so to speak, in Russia? I, I really believe so, um, because when you think about what those people went through uh, for the seventy, eighty years uh, that they had to endure uh, atheistic communism, uh, and you think about the fathers and the grandfathers and the pastors that were taken away in the middle of the night, put on the trains and sent out to Siberia and executed for their faith. Uh, these are people who uh, understand that the church now, that God, and, they, and they recognize the fact that it was to God's hand and his providence that, uh, that these walls came down. They recognize the fact that uh, the reason God brought those walls down was so that they had the freedom to preach the gospel to the people in their cities, towns, and villages and across their countries. And so those churches are being built upon a foundation of great sacrifice and really on the blood of the martyrs. So they have a huge commitment, they have a huge passion, and, um, and for us, you know, we exist to serve those churches in any way we can. So we train their pastors, we sponsor hundreds of their national church planters and send them out to evangelize and plant new churches. 
and then we equip them with resources to meet both the physical and spiritual needs of the people in the communities. Orphans, you know, we send kids to children's camp, compassion ministries, Chernobyl victims, people down in the war zones, and we equip them with resources, and, and they literally go out and they do whatever they can to get the gospel in front of these people. And we're getting reports back on a regular basis of people coming to faith in Christ. And I just got one back uh, the other day from somebody in Ukraine. Uh, He's an ambulance driver and a pastor. And he's been given the assignment of driving the COVID-19 patients to the hospital, which is an hour away. And as these people travel to the hospital, they're scared. And uh, he opens up the conversation about spiritual things, and he's leading these people to Christ on the way to the hospital, uh, having come down with the virus. So um, we're seeing this in the orphanages, and we're seeing this um, uh, just in in one situation after another, because these people, um, you know, what, what they're saying in the villages is that it's the church is the only people that are helping them. And, um, uh, out in Siberia, I got a report back from uh, church planter. He went in, uh, ministering to needs of an older, older gentleman. He had lost his job. He had lost his livelihood. He had no income. They walked in with the food packet. They sat down. They shared the love of Christ with him, and he told them that he was on the verge of suicide. And, uh, and, and it wasn't until they showed up, the Lord opened the door for them to come, that he, um, uh, that he finally had some hope in his life. So... These are the kinds of these these are the kinds of people that we're serving and we're equipping, and uh, they want to meet the physical needs of these people, but uh, they're more important to them is sharing uh, the love of Christ with them, so that people more and more people might come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and people are open there right now. Certainly, a very key juncture in history right now, and an opportunity that we don't want to spurn. Appreciate uh, Michael Johnson for being with us, president of the Slavic gospel mission association rather uh, they are literally boots on ground in many places throughout the former um, soviet union the cis that uh, does not have the benefit of social service agencies and the the usual safety nets that we enjoy here in the west and of course uh, not only meeting physical needs but most importantly the spiritual needs as well information available on the web the good work of the slavic gospel association online at sga.org that's sga.org michael johnson we appreciate you being with us on this edition of lifeline 518 let's get you updated on some traffic from the kfax traffic center And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When we talk about the challenges we're facing globally and the impact of COVID-19, and to be sure, from the very get-go, as we've watched the spread of this disease, and particularly the fact that it claims so many elderly lives, 80% of the over 100,000 Americans who have succumbed to it, 80% over the age of 65. And of course, it, it, it brings up questions. Why God? And no doubt, some of this sort of the, the notion of where is a sense of justice behind all of this? And many of these questions that you and I are struggling with today were struggled with once before in a, um, a very notable experience outlined in the pages of the book of Job. 
Job, of course, we see even God himself characterizes as a man that was blameless, righteous, who honored God, and yet went through some difficult times. And uh, with three friends, <laughs> friends like those, you know, what do you need an enemy for, right? Um, struggled trying to understand questions related to God's justice and ultimately trying to address the question that you and I are even struggling with today, and that is, um, how do we explain suffering? Well, some insights now in a new book that tackles this very important book of Job. It's called Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Dr. Michael Brown, president of Fire School of Ministry, who served as an adjunct professor at seven leading seminaries and holds his Ph.D. from New York University, joins us now by phone. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's it's great to be with you. And the Book of Job. I suppose, in, I suppose, in one sense, you've really uh, you, you, this is this is a difficult uh, topic to to deal with. As anyone who has read the book and and has attempted to try and understand the book, that we know that it it in some respects raises a lot of questions, just as as Job has his questions. But undoubtedly, you know the old the old phrase for such a time as this. Yeah, the book of Job is so relevant now because it raises the difficult questions. And the first thing someone needs to know is that God chose to have this in the Bible. In other words, if we're just supposed to shut our minds to questions, if we're not supposed to wonder about anything, if, we're, if, if everything is always supposed to seem perfect and right and fair, then the book of Job is a strange book to put in the Bible. But, but God is a realistic God, and he knows that people will struggle. And he knows that at times it will appear that inexplicable things happen in the lives of godly people. Because I'm sure out of that 100,000, that terrible number, there were many godly people and, and devoted old saints of God, and they died of this virus. So the book of Job is there to say the hard questions can be asked. And in fact, the subtitle to my commentary, The Faith to Challenge God, it opens up the fact that even though God rebukes Job, for wrong attitude and accusing God of doing evil, God commends Job for speaking rightly about him. Because Job was basically saying there must be justice in God's universe. And, and so Job flees from God, the God he feels is afflicting him, to God, the God that he appeals to as the Redeemer. And, and that's kind of the psychological tension believers might go through, but there it is, laid out in the pages of the Bible. And how interesting to know the number of parallels that we could even see today as we try to struggle with things like uh, COVID-19, maybe somebody's lost a job, maybe somebody listening right now is going through a, a bitter divorce or has recently been diagnosed with something like, I don't know, cancer. And so they're struggling with these kinds of Job-type questions and in an effort to try and understand where is God? What of this question of suffering? Why does God allow good people to suffer? And, and, and interesting that not unlike Job, oftentimes we have well-intentioned friends who will come along and purport to try and give us a lot of the answers, not all of which are really all that appropriate. Yeah, I mean, someone once said that the three friends were doing great until they opened their mouths. And you know, that's, that's what often happens. But But think of it. The friends knew Job. He was a godly man. God himself commended him. 
he was prosperous, he was blessed. It looked like everything was going according to script, right? I love the Lord, I honor the Lord, my life is blessed. Then he loses everything. Then he, then he begins to question things. He, he curses the day he was born. He begins to speak in a way they haven't heard. When, when they try to correct him, he pushes back because he knows, this didn't happen to me because I was in sin. This didn't happen to me. I didn't lose all my children in a day because I was a wicked man. So he, he questions the system. When the friends hear that, they decide, Job, you're a sinner. You're a wicked man. This happened to you because you are wicked. And that's what we often do to protect our own little safe theological world. You know, you must have done something bad because I'm living a good life and only good things are happening to me. So if I dare question the system, something might happen. And, and Job's friends make the error of saying, Job, you must be a wicked sinner. Job knows that he doesn't deserve this, but he makes the mistake now of, of accusing God of wickedness, because that's his only other alternative. So they, they both make those mistakes in, in, instead of doing what ultimately happens, which is persevering and hanging on even when it makes no sense, even when you've lost everything, even when you feel distant from God, to say with Job in one of his moments of great faith, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end of the book of Job, God does not answer all of Job's specific questions, and Job never mentions the devil and his involvement, Satan, but instead Job encounters God in his beauty, in his majesty, in his wisdom, and that's enough. And sometimes we just need to stand with someone suffering and say, I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me. I see these promises in the Bible, and this looks like the opposite, but I know that God is good. And if we can just hang on to the end, he's going to bring good out of evil. Everything that circumstances the world, this virus, this pandemic, this shutdown, everything that in the natural is meant for evil and destruction, God can turn around and redeem for greater good. That's who he is, and that's what we have to seize hold of in a time like this. And, you know, the interesting thing, I, I'm reminded of the passage in Scripture where, we, you know, we, now we see through a glass darkly, and that, yep. that notion that as often as we want all of the answers because we think somehow it's going to make sense, somehow it's going to relieve us of the anxiety, the pain that we're going through, the emotional pain related to whatever has, has befallen us, and yet even as, as simplistically as Job, egged on by his three buddies, tries to approach this issue, uh, it, it's interesting in the end to see that, that God is clear in, in kind of underscoring the idea that his world, the universe, is vast and it is complex and that in our not infinite but finite sight, uh, our limited view of the world, that there's going to be things and times and events that just simply go beyond the capacity of our understanding. And, and maybe in that we find some comfort. Right. When, when you come to the realization that there's a lot that we don't understand, and you have a sense that God is trustworthy, that brings a tremendous sense of peace. And look, if God explains certain things to us, we still wouldn't get them. And, and what he shows when, when he, he reveals himself to Job, he doesn't just bully Job and intimidate him with questions. He does show Job how little he knows. But then he also shows him about the beauty and the order of the world that he created. This, this God 
that seems so monstrous sometimes is, is watering land that no human being is ever going to see and is caring for it because that's part of his creation. And this same God is, is, is triumphant over all the, the powers of darkness and chaos and these mighty beasts and all this. He, he subdues them all. So what we have to do is not always look for answers to questions. You know, we want that. We want like a systematic theology textbook. Okay, I'm going through this, go to this page and look it up. When it comes to the Bible, there are those answers. But more than not, there's a push to get us to encounter God. And, and when you see him, the problems go away. It's almost like when you know someone that's mourning there in pain, and you're thinking, what are the right words to say? What are the right And you can't think of anything. And when you see them, you give them a big hug, they cry in your arms. That's what they needed. That's what has to happen with us and God in that sense, that, that we are embraced by him. And in that love, it's amazing how peace comes, how a lot of the questions vanish, and how there's a deep sense it's all going to be all right. And it's fascinating that you put it in that perspective, Dr. Brown, because at the end of the day, so often when we're going through turmoil and trouble, whatever it might be, we're so eager to try and seek and find answers when in the end, maybe the biggest lesson, the biggest takeaway from the life and experiences of Job is that our comfort can be found not in the answers, but simply in God, in him, in in if we put more energy into finding God as opposed to finding the answers, maybe the outcome of uh, how we feel going through some of these challenges and experiences in life would be a lot different. Yeah, you, you absolutely nailed it, and, and it's a real theme of, of the book of Job. When I wrote the commentary, my, my goal was to bring that reader to the same place. In other words, the, the emotion of Job, the power of Job, the rawness of Job, for the reader to go along with that, for, for the reader to, to be able to express what Job expressed and, and feel what Job felt and then come to that end of the journey of encountering God, it's a humbling thing because we think we know so much and we're so wise and we have the answers. It's very humbling when God says, can you just tell me when the, the wild goats you know, give birth and how that happens and how this happened when I hung the earth on nothing? Were you there? It's very humbling, but then what comes out of it is that security, because we're talking about that same God, that same infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God saying, I'm your Father, and I care. In other words, I'm not against you, I'm not out to destroy you, if you're my child, I'm for you, and I have your long-term best interests in mind. Knowing that, we can go through anything. The book is called Job. The Faith to Challenge God, newly released by Hendrickson Publishers. You'll find it through um, some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order it through Dr. Brown's website. It's simple, askdrbrown.org, and that's Dr. D-R abbreviated, askdrbrown.org. Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Certainly a fascinating book, a tremendous study, and a very timely one, too, in the light of, well, not just what's going on in the world, but times that we all face that are challenging. Dr. Michael Brown, we appreciate the time and the insight. 5.36, so we're late. Let's get caught up in some traffic here. We do so at the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, welcome back to the conversation. Yesterday, time with Memorial Day, governor of our fair state issued some directives in relationship to opening churches at long last. You have to wonder, though, how practical are some of the new rules? Oh, it's some of the things that you would expect, social distancing, masks, uh, good sanitation, cleaning hands, wiping down surfaces, things of that sort. I, I guess if you have a small church, being told that you can have no more than 100 people gathering is probably not a big deal to you. If you're the average size congregation of the Bay Area or larger, this is not going to sound very encouraging. Let's get an update now. We're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, it was announced um, late last week that a lawsuit has been filed in U.S. District Court uh, on behalf of a couple of Southern California churches. Now that the governor has actually issued these guidelines, what is your response? Too little, too late? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. It's too little and it's too late. Uh, the, the fact is, uh, this governor uh, had the opportunity to uh, do what he should have done. Uh, he, you know, uh, followed uh, the, the guidance of the uh, Department of Justice, uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, he could have, uh, you know, uh, heeded uh, what we had planned in our, our, our pleadings and our lawsuit that we filed. Uh, but instead, he decided to, to give in a little bit, hoping that it would somehow uh, prevent uh, things from falling in and him preventing from doing what he wants to do, which is to keep churches really uh, handicapped. Today we had shopping malls opening up. Shopping malls. Uh, Costco was stuffed with people. They didn't have, there's no lines anymore. Uh, retail stores, they're, they're all back, back up and running. Uh, but churches can only have, uh, they only fill up to 25% of their occupancy or uh, 100 people at, at most, whatever is less. Not whatever is most, whatever is less. So let me give you an example. So you have a church that has 50 people per set occupancy. There's a little, like, a little white chapel. I preached at one of those once before. And they're wonderful. They have a little white chapel, 50 occupancy. They could have 12 people in their church. That's it. And then let's see you have a big church, Craig, like a you know, 5,000 member in the church. You can have 100. That's it. So we at Pacific Justice Institute, we're continuing with, with our lawsuit in federal court that we filed last week in Sacramento. And we're also having a very important conference call for churches and, and pastors uh, to Zoom call on Thursday at 2 p.m. They can register on our website for it. We're going to talk about some ways that some churches can get around it. Um, practically speaking, and we're going to talk about, for example, outdoor services. Um, those were never mentioned uh, in the in, in, in what he pre his guidelines. He didn't mention outdoor services; just restrictions for indoor services. So it looks pretty strong, actually, for a church. Uh, we have the noise ordinance. We have a checklist for outdoor services. And the other thing we're going to talk about is uh, maximizing the facility use, because that's it's not per whole facility; that's per room. So you can spread them out, have screens in different rooms, uh, the youth center and other places, and uh, that's another way of mitigating it along with increasing church services. And um, so that's what, some of the things that we're going to be advising, and also some recommendations, some safety recommendations that could, could really come in handy as well about uh, dealing with people who are at, at high risk in your church. And as you point out, so often we tend to kind of have, you know, this room is set aside for fellowship, this room is set aside for worship, this room is set aside for the youth, 
the ability to um, get creative and maximize the use of all those rooms by, you know, extension of audio or video into each uh, certainly can be one creative way to um, to help protect congregants. What I don't understand is, and, you know, none of us are experts at this with that sort of disclaimer. We don't have any experience with this, so we're just kind of making it up as we go along. But I have to wonder, who made up the idea that it was 25% of the occupancy rate or... <laughs> pardon me, or 100 people, whichever may be less. Now, I realize here in the Bay Area, Brad, we, we don't have a lot of so-called mega churches, but there's one church that comes to mind that I know of uh, whose pastor is a dear friend and a frequent guest on this program, and if I called the name, you'd know immediately who I'm talking about. He has a congregation, a, a church facility that can seat eh, 5,500. Now... <laughs> If you tell me 25% of that, I think, okay, well, then you can have, you know, 1,250 people in there. And if you're all good at sanitation and, you know, social distancing, that'll probably work. But to say to me that you can have 100 people in a facility that can accommodate over 5,000, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, you get your six feet, but <laughs> do you need 600 feet per person? Right. It's, uh, it is it is pretty uh, ridiculous, and I think that uh, as we work with churches, you know, temporarily we can we can have them open up and function, uh, but it's it's his his restrictions are are very burdensome, and the real gripe that I see now is the unequal treatment, uh, and that's what's so so strong about our federal lawsuit that we filed against the governor, uh, is because uh, we point out clearly unequal treatment how. The standards for restaurants is much higher density, and and, and than than say for churches. Why is is food somehow more protected under the Constitution to get a meal than to worship? No, actually, the First Amendment protects worship. It doesn't protect people's right to eat in restaurants. So it's it's very logical. Schools opening up, not just once a week, when you know for an hour, or a couple hours maybe at the most. We're talking five days a week, six and a half hours a day. We have counties now approving that, and this would be approved under the governor's, um, you know, policies. And that's clear unequal treatment, and we can't expect kids, I don't think, to be more sanitary than adults. Usually that's not how that works. So it's, um, it's very problematic. It's loaded with bias, and, uh, and I think that's, and that's why we at Pacific Justice Institute are taking this so seriously. We're moving full steam on our case on appeal in, in Oregon against the governor there. Uh, we've got... Uh, attorneys in other states that we're, we've set up. We just opened an office in New York uh, this week uh, with a, uh, an attorney there who's uh, going to be uh, serving in uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, because we have so many requests for help now coming out from the East Coast of churches that are crying out for, for assistance. So um, it's, it's a major struggle, but I do see uh, the trend definitely in our direction, and uh, I'm hopeful that the courts will, will um, follow that trend as well moving forward. And I, and I realize that, uh, you know, you're, you're an attorney, you're dignified, you're not just a lawyer, but you are a constitutional lawyer, so there's a sense of decorum that you have to carry. But I'll ask the question for you. Who came up with this bright idea? <laughs> I mean, I you gotta, you got to really wonder who sat on that committee and said, yeah, 25% uh, of the occupancy, up to 100 people. Yeah, that works. I mean, it just, it, it really... It really makes you wonder if this was a rush to judgment or if we, you know, just grabbed anybody off the street and said, hey, can you come in real quick? <laughs> yeah, Craig, it's, it's crazy. And, 
it's like they wanted to give something, but just the very minimal. Like how how can we give something that they just keep it so minimal that you know that we keep these churches at bay and 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 non-functional for for as long as we can. And that seems to be like the mindset that came out of this. Uh, like I say, fortunately, they didn't mention anything about outdoor services. Uh, so I think that's a window that, uh, that definitely people should be, be looking at um, using and um, moving forward, especially if they have large churches and they have the space. But the space is often a, often a problematic for many churches uh, wanting to have an outdoor service. Yeah, undoubtedly so. Well, we appreciate the time and uh, the energy going into this. Be sure to keep us posted. Information available on the web, pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And our thanks to founder, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, let's get you updated on traffic here right quick. We'll do so from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. May 8th, just about three weeks ago, Governor Newsom issued an order indicating that ballots were going to be sent out to all registered voters in the state of California. Not an option to receive a ballot by mail, not the um, application form for absentee voting, but rather the actual ballot and suffice it to say, this is getting the governor in a bit of hot water. Let's talk about it. Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And, uh, you know, I, I, there have been things that are maybe more egregious, I suppose, like California's disastrous motor voter bill that has yet to be overturned, where you don't even need to barely right. fog up a mirror in order to get yourself voter registration. And now in California, we're just going to mail them to everybody. How is that going to work? Well, Craig, I'm really glad you're framing it that way because I'll tell you, the way the dominant media culture reports on California political decisions is they don't give you the rest of the story. They keep you in the dark. And one of the problems and why this is so significant, and I think our pro-life, traditional value listeners people who really care about the abuse of the laws in Sacramento and the extraordinary far kooky laws that are going on. This is actually designed to keep that particular political party in power and never, ever be able to remove them. This is why. It may sound like, and I've had people say, well, what's wrong with voting from home? I've done it before. I've cast absentee ballots. That is not what's at stake here. This is Social basket voting. And by that, as you pointed out, you gave a little bit more of the rest of the story. You don't have to be registered to vote to be registered to vote in California. <laughs> Let me say it again. You don't have to be registered to vote to be registered to vote. And I simply, I, I'll give you an example. I am renewing my driver's license right now. It expires. Everybody should know this. May 28th is my birthday. My license expires. If you want to send gifts, that's fine. But no, uh, my license expires, so I've been trying to renew it. They won't let me go in until after May 29th. There's a lot you can do online, and that was an education because they point out that they're going to register you to vote by filling out your driver's license application. They're going to do that, and they basically say it's, that's what's going to happen. You have to opt out 
of that and say, no, no, I don't want to vote. So you have to opt out. They're going to put you, you're getting a ballot, and you're going to be registered, quote, unquote. But then in terms of, of your citizenship, it's on the next page, it asks if you're a U.S. citizen. And it says, oh, well, only U.S. citizens can vote. It says that, but you have to have opted out. You have to opt out to not get the ballot. And there's a lot of shenanigans that are already happening right now in California that the major media, and again, they have an ideological worldview. They don't want to examine too deeply, but same-day voting, you mentioned that. You can actually go anywhere in California and get a ballot and say on Election Day, this is, how, this has been for several years already, just show up and say, I want to vote. And they'll say, do you live in town? I need to know where you're going to vote. So you do have to offer an address so you can get the appropriate ballot for that address. But it's just an address. You don't have to prove residency. And in the statute itself, if you look at the statute, they can ask for an ID, but specifically, there's no ID requirement. You simply have to state that. And then when you fill your ballot out, you put it in, and that is put in the provisional ballot box. And what that means is those ballots are only counted if it's a close race. And very often that is where races are stolen because now those ballots are valid ballots and they're not counted in the first round but they do get counted and i think if you remember american history and every listener should really look back at american history to a place called tammany hall which was the name of the organizing organization in new york city and you know i'm i'm son of Irish immigrants, but they came after World War II. As you know, in New York in the 1830s, there were thousands and thousands of Irish that came through New York. And Tammany Hall organized itself to get them to vote and collect their votes in bushel baskets. And they would simply collect those ballots for them. It was a service. It was to make it easy for them to participate in the civic process. And Tammany Hall is a, a watchword of corrupt politics. Now, you already know in San Francisco, many Bay Area counties, you do not explicitly, you don't have to be a resident, you don't have to be a citizen. They have told voters, you can vote here in San Francisco and not be a citizen. Come on down. Now, ironically, if you look to Mexico, in Mexico, they're terrified of ballot box stuffing because it happens all the time. And we know this, if you look into the news, the cartels control many political parties in Mexico, and they stuff ballots as a hobby. And what in Mexico is necessary for you to cast a ballot, you have to show an ID. That's no longer required in California at all. You have to show an ID. You have to sign a verification, which is a legal document. So you're, you're signing a legal document, man. You're in trouble if you lie. You sign your name it has to verify with your id and the third thing you do is you have to give a fingerprint now that's in mexico 
they they see corruption all the time, and they're trying to fight it. Here, and again, I I love the Mexican people. My 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 wife is it was in Estrada before we married. This is about forms of government. The Mexican government is corrupt. Corruption is taken for granted. When we have bushel basket voting, and that's the real issue, is the governor saying everybody gets a ballot. We're going to blanket the state with empty ballots that you can then collect. And the way the ballots are collected, you've heard about vote harvesting, is literally on Election Day and leading up to Election Day, individuals can come in with boxes with 30, 50, 100 500 ballots and dump them. The verification process, and this is important for the right to life. See, the reason government exists, and when you have balloting, you're talking about your form of government and having a voice in government. The purpose of government under our founding principles and under any republic, the purpose of government is to protect the lives of the individuals being governed. The value of every life is significant. When you no longer have that principle at work, the purpose of government is to control people, is to control society. And we're seeing two worldviews. So when you want to progress to a better society, you have to control things and bring people and superimpose your moral values through government. And it views people in groups. In a republic, every individual has a vote. And that vote is their voice. Now, that being said, for every false vote that gets counted, a valid vote is vitiated. It's meaningless. There is so much at stake in what the governor has done and has not been closely examined. There are several cases. Now, California Pro-Life Council is joining a federal suit to make sure that we continue with the ability to monitor the votes. Because if we go to Tammany Hall bushel basket collection. And again, if your friend, hey, I have voted absentee. This is not about voting absentee. This is about the distribution of ballots, which now no longer has any true definition and limitations. Think about, well, what would be wrong if we distributed ballots on street corners? Hey, get your ballots. Here's some ballots. Everybody get some ballots. Bring some home to your friends. Voting is a wonderful thing. No. That's not the purpose of voting. That, that obviates the power and significance of your vote and your voice. It's a Well, and the other irony here is that we so often try to encourage people about the importance of voting and letting their voice be counted in active participation in democracy. And we try to give a sense of importance and, and gravitas to this citizen-run nation. And then to turn around and say, you know, you're your um, right and privilege as a citizen to cast a vote and to elect the representatives that will um, vote for you and manage the nation on your behalf or the state or the city. Uh, But anybody can just sign up. You don't have to even provide proof of citizenship. And as you point out in California, the uh, motor voter bill that was passed quite a number of years ago creates a, an environment where literally anybody who shows up to get a driver's license can wind up voting. There is a lawsuit filed against the governor now in addressing this, been filed by the uh, 
state to GOP and others, no doubt, that will hopefully address this issue and um, even raise the more important question, can the governor, through executive order, even modify election law in California as he apparently has attempted to do so? Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, we appreciate the update. Information, by the way, you can stay on top of this issue and pro-life issues of interest to all of us every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on Life Matters, hosted by Brian Johnston, an informative and engaging program, the one that pulls back the curtain, lets you really get an understanding as to what's going on in the world around us relevant to pro-life-related issues. Again, that's Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m., right here on KFAX, online at californiaprolife.org. 6.05, we're late. Let's get you caught up here on traffic right now as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center.